we've been working our way through the uh, last few months through the book of Hebrews. And as we've worked through the book of Hebrews, a couple weeks ago, Ian preached through the entire seventh chapter. Last week, he got into the beginning of the eighth chapter. And as he and I talked, we were just like, man, this is really going to be difficult for me to sort of just pick up where he was and continue with any continuity with him coming back next week. And so he had this idea, which I thought was a good idea, in light of what was introduced a couple weeks ago, that he sort of just had to pass over real quick in uh, chapter 7, that we would take a step back and give ourselves an opportunity to take a look at the topic of giving, the topic of generosity, which is a little unusual for us because as long as I've been a pastor here, uh, we've actually never specifically preached a message on giving or generosity. You see, we preach expositionally through books of the Bible, and while the topic of money is a very popular topic in the sense that it is, comes up over and over again uh, within the Bible and within the books that we've preached, it really hasn't been an opportunity for us to sort of, of camp down and really spend uh, any amount of time speaking about principles of giving and generosity. And so when we, we saw what uh, was sort of coming, we thought, you know what, this might be a good opportunity for us to sort of interject, you know, a one-off sermon here. And I was calling it a biblical theology of generosity or giving. And if you know much about uh, biblical theology, you'll realize that today is not like a pure biblical theology. Um, but that is the topic that we are covering uh, today. We are going to talk about giving and generosity. So before we get into the various texts and applications um, that I want to make, let me share with you a personal story uh, about my family, about my family growing up. And, you know, the church, and when I say the church, I'm speaking more universally, like churches, not just this church. So very, very general here. They can sort of catch a bad rap about money, right? Uh, If you have any type of background in mainline denominations, some of them have uh, maybe a little bit of a bad rap. We're like, that's one of the things they talk about all the time. Well, when I became a follower of Jesus, just over, uh, I realized that this last week, it was just over 21 years ago that I became a follower of Jesus. I was in college Uh, And shortly after uh, I started following Jesus, I wanted my parents also to follow Jesus, and they they weren't. So I invited uh, my mom and dad to come to church with me. And my dad's like, "I'm, I'm not going to church. And he's like, they just want my money. And that was his perspective on what the church was like, because that was his experience as a younger kid growing up in the Lutheran church that he had grown up in. Now, before you think I'm broad-brushing all Lutherans, I'm not. It was just his experience. But I know that his experience is not an isolated experience, that a lot of people sort of have a bit of a rub with the church as it relates to money, because it is a topic that is spoken of frequently. Uh, Well, thankfully, that's not the case here, because we do preach expositionally. It does only come up uh, as we preach through books of the Bible. And so my dad he did not want to come to church. And uh, he came rather reluctantly because my mom wanted to come and they came. And I'm like, dad, trust me, like our church, the church that I'm going to, I'm like, it's not like what you are thinking, right? 
And so we come into the church, and, you know, we're greeted, normal church entrance experience. And his first question was, like, where are the little, where are the little pews, the little pads that you kneel on? Because, again, he's loose to a Lutheran church, and in his context, there was a public confession. I'm like, well, it's not like that here at this church. Um, and so he's looking through the bulletin, and he sees, you know, sort of the order of everything. And lo and behold, what is the sermon on on this Sunday? Money, right? And I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, I'm like for sure this is going to completely put my dad off, not going to come back. Uh, well, you know what? The Spirit of God is way more powerful than anything like that. And uh, I'm happy to report that he repented, became a believer. Both he and my mom did. Uh, lived a very generous and, and good life. He passed away about 12 years ago. Uh, he had cancer. But in that time that he became a believer, he was on fire for the Lord and really, really made an impact in his local church. So I wanted to start with a personal story because it related to money, related to my dad. I love telling stories about my dad. Um, But I do share that story for a few reasons. One, perhaps it captures your feelings, especially if you haven't uh, been to a church like ours very often or if you've just started coming. Uh, Or two, perhaps you've come from a church context where money was a major preaching topic, you know. Or three, maybe you are here today for the first time thinking, oh great, I show up to a church for the very first time, and they're already talking about money. Uh, So, peace, I'm out of here, right? Well, I say, hold on, Uh, this is not a sermon about money, actually. This is a sermon about giving and generosity, which I hope that I can demonstrate is very, very clear uh, from the scripture. So please stay. What we're going to talk about here is what the Bible teaches. And when we put it into practice, I believe it's going to glorify Jesus and it's going to advance the mission of the church. So here's the big idea that we have for today. The Christian life is a life lived generously, right? So the Christian life is a life lived generously. So let's Go back and start at the beginning of Hebrews 7. This is going to sort of be our launching point today. Uh, I'm not going to be preaching this text in particular in Hebrews 7. This is where we're launching from, and we're going to be in a bunch of different places today. And I have most of the verses. They should be on the screen behind us uh, in case you don't want to flip or scroll through. Uh, So in Hebrews 7, where we want to launch from today, uh, let me just read this. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. So, when you read this, you hear this, one of your reactions or questions as you process through this text is, Why is Abraham giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything? And if that's what you're thinking, that's a good question, that's a good observation. And to get the answer to this question, we need to look back at the Old Testament, where we're sort of going to re-begin here, at where this comes from. Because this is actually taken directly out of the Old Testament in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, it it starts out talking about how Abram, who became Abraham, he rescues his nephew Lot from, from capture. He's been captured. So Abram, when he hears of his nephew's capture, he leads an army to rescue him, and God shows him favor. He slaughters the armies that took him. And back then, and maybe even to a certain degree today, when you defeat an army, 
the spoils become yours, right? And so they return back, Abram returns back after this defeat with the spoils. And in verse 18 from Genesis 14, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So why did Abram give Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils after this victory? So let's talk first about what this tenth is and what this tenth represents. A tenth, as perhaps we have heard it, is more commonly referred to as a tithe. A tithe means a tenth. And tithing in the Old Testament is a principle, and really it's a law, that God used to provide for the ministers he had called to serve his church. It, it provided essentially salary and expenses for ministry. The tithe, and encompassed in that a major part of what the scriptures speak to us about, uh, that the tithe covers is benevolence and mercy. And so if you can think of what the, the mandate or the law here is, it's to give a tenth so that ministers can minister and show mercy, right? And so you might recall that in the Old Testament, God designated one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, to be the tribe that would have the ministry of the tabernacle and the temple. So you have this entire tribe. Their job, essentially, is to be ministers of the tent and the tabernacle. So instead of giving them a portion of the land like God had given the other 11 tribes, here's land to work, land to live on, uh, land to harvest and grow, raise animals, grow grains. The Levites didn't have that. Instead, God told these vocational ministers of the tabernacle that they need to live off the tithes of the other 11 tribes. So in Numbers 18 and verses 20 and 21, this is what God says to Aaron. You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do their service in the tent of meeting. So this is where the tithe comes from. This is where the idea of giving 10% of your income comes from. And knowing that this is an Old Testament law, we should then be asking ourselves, how does this Old Testament law now bear on me? We don't live in an Old Testament time anymore, right? We know that we are under the new covenant. So, should I be giving 10% of my income to the church? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. The question here becomes, how does this mosaic arrangement of giving a tenth to the Levites relate to our, the new covenant that we live under now today? How does this relate? And you know what? This is a huge question, and I don't even want to pretend that I can cover even a small portion of that uh, here this morning, because there are books and books upon books that have been written and continue to be written on this very, very topic. But what I do want to do is give you some texts, and as simply as I can, I want to state what I believe on the matter, which is what I believe the Bible is to teach us. So there are a number of scriptures that we're going to mention, 
And there's a number more that we could mention. Remember, the Bible talks about money a lot. And a lot of times that money talk, or that Bible talks about money in relationship to giving too. Um, but where we're going to start now as we get into some New Testament texts is in Romans 7. Romans 7, 4 and Romans 7, 6, they read like this. And these are very foundational. These are important to understand. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now we are released from the law. That's really important to read. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of written code. Galatians 2.19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And then Romans 6.15, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but now under grace? So my answer is that in the new covenant, in this new relationship to God through the Messiah who's fulfilled the law for us, we are no longer under the law. It is not the primary way in which we relate to God anymore. If you know much about the law, in fact, we talked a little bit about this this summer when we preached through the Pentateuch. And I, I had the job of preaching through Leviticus in one shot. Uh, so it was a big overview. But, man, in the book of Leviticus, there is a lot of law and there is a lot of sacrifice. We don't live under that anymore according to these texts, right? So, in the place of the law has come what Paul twice calls the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or, in 1 Corinthians 9.21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law, but under the, under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. So, it's not as though we are set adrift without any bearing or any direction. Christ is our bearing, who he was, what he taught, what he said, the law of Christ, that is now where the bearing is. Christ is our bearing. And as it turns out, the law of Christ, that is the law of love that fulfills all of the Old Testament commands. So I think we are turned away from law keeping as the dominant defining primary way we relate to God and we relate to Christ and we relate to the Holy Spirit. So then if that's not the if the law isn't the dominant way, where does tithing now fit in, right? So that's what we want to we try to get to. We know that tithing does not now bear on us as Old Testament law because we're under the new covenant. So what, where does this fit? And we've already discussed that it was a way of supporting the Levites. The Levites didn't have any land. They didn't get an inheritance. And the way that that tribe was supported as ministers in the temple and the tabernacle was that all the others, the other 11 tribes, they were essentially taxed. And they were to give a tenth and bring it. So the Levites, they would live off of those tithes. And you could say generally that it was a way of supporting uh, the covenantal religious system of, of that era. So I'm asking a lot of rhetorical questions here. Should that then be the way in which under the new covenant, the church operates today. 
If, that's the, if that was the law and the principles that we learn coming out of the Old Testament, should those, we know we're not bound by the law. I hope I made that pretty clear already. But principally, is that how we should still, is that how the church still operates? Or is that how pastors should be compensated or taken care of uh, today? We already know what the New Testament, the New Testament mentions a number of times the compensation of a pastor. First um, Timothy 5.18, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. First uh, Timothy 5.17, the elder should be worthy of double honor in the context of the support of widows. So the New Testament puts giving into a different category of, it's not in the category of have to, and 10% anymore. Paul never instructs us to lay aside a tithe. Instead, he says things like this. He says, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. And he also shares with us a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians that I believe to be fairly foundational on this. And this is where we're going to get more to the idea of, of generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they have, according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, as you're paying attention to those texts, it's pretty clear, it's pretty obvious that there's no mention of a tithe, there's no mention of 10%. Um, That's not how giving in the New Testament and under the New Covenant is governed. They're not mandated. Rather, it says that we should be governed by lavish, sacrificial generosity that overflows freely and joyfully. Well, what does that mean? What does generous giving look like? I got a quote here from John Piper, and if I just left it as is, I think some people might be like, He's so wrong. But listen to this and think about this. Piper says this, I have often said to my people over the years, and that's the church that he pastored for 30 plus years, that a middle class American who is only tithing 10% is probably robbing God. In other words, we've become so accustomed to our Western prosperity and its ways of life that we think 5 or 10% is generous. We are a society that loves to live beyond their means, are we not? I mean, if you just look at the statistics that relate to consumer credit card debt, it is crazy. And those are the things that sort of show us, man, we really love to live beyond our means. I read an article just this last week, and this is uh, actually, it might have even been yesterday. It was talking about how automobiles are becoming more and more expensive and banks are allowing people to stretch those loans out even longer into like this. I mean, it used to be, now I know there's 
a good number of the younger generation here who probably have no experience in buying a car. Uh, I've bought a couple, and there's some of you here who have bought a number of them. And frankly, maybe half of you don't even have a car. Uh, We live in a neighborhood like that. We live in a city like that. However, it used to be that you would go to a bank to get a loan, and you couldn't get a loan for more than three or four years. That's, that was the normal automobile loan. Well, now you can stretch these loans into seven, maybe even up to like 10 years now when you go and buy a car. And well, what does that mean? Well, that means your car depreciates faster than what you can pay down on it. So what's happening is people, they get sick of their car, right? Eh, I need something new and shiny. Well, you may have paid $40,000 on that car, stretch that loan out over seven years, Today, you owe 30000 on it, except for the bank says, well, not the bank, but reality says it's only worth twenty. You're upside down on it. That's what's happening when you stretch your loan out like that. So people, they're living beyond their means. So what are they doing? This article was all about how people were, dealerships are telling people to, all right, we can't do anything to help you because you're upside down, right? That's just the way it is. We'll sell you a new car. We'll go through a different lender. And then you call your other bank and just say, I'm going to give it back to you. Uh, that's going to kill your credit, by the way, uh, if that's something you care about. But people are legitimately doing this. And dealerships are even recommending it, said. So this is crazy, but it was sort of like a light bulb for me. I'm like, man, people continue to live beyond their means. Now, I want you to remember, I'll probably say this a few more times, because I want this to be abundantly clear. I would want to continually emphasize that 10% of giving is not a have to. Under the new covenant, 10% is not a have to. Not a single one of us here is bound by that rule. However, I will say this. Principally, it does seem like a really solid starting point. So perhaps we could illustrate it this way. Let's suppose that a coach tells his high school sports team, let's make it a football team, because we like football, the XFL. Anybody watching XFL? Sweet, four people. I'm watching it. Drew Sawyer, we, we adopted the Dallas Renegades as our team. They played it at three. They lost last week. Uh, the only guy's name on the team that I know, John Calvin. <laughs> Sounds fairly uh, prophetic to me, so that's who we're going with. Uh, anyway, let's assume we've got, a, we've got a high school sports football coach. He goes to his team and he says, all right, every single morning you guys are up at 5 a.m. You're running three miles. After that, you're hitting the gym. You're going to be in the gym lifting weights for an hour. I want everything you do for the maximum effectiveness of this team. Now instead, let's suppose the coach says something like this. I want you to love this sport with all your heart. I want you to give it everything you've got. I want you to pursue maximum excellence, and I want you to serve this team to make it as great as it can be. Now, which of those two ways of talking to the team sets a higher standard? The second way doesn't have any rules attached to it, but the first one does. You're up at five, you're, you're running three miles, you're going to lift for an hour. Uh, seems pretty rigorous to me. Um, but the second word from the coach 
doesn't it set a higher standard? He touches the heart of the team and the members. And if any of them uses the absence of rules to justify half-hearted allegiance to the team, he's simply not following the heart of his coach. And so it is with giving to the church. What does it look like to give to the church? Well, I think that we want to love the church generously. Let me talk about a couple of principles here. First, let's talk about the principle of first fruits. Some of you have probably heard of this idea of first fruits um, because Moses talks about it quite a bit. We find in the scriptures this principle of first fruits, and it's, it's generally tied to agriculture. And God called his people to bring the first yield of his harvest to him as an offering. This was to demonstrate the Israelites' obedience and reverence toward God, and it also showed that, that they trusted God to provide enough crops to feed their family. These first fruits that were harvested would generally, part of them would go to the Levites, that's part of the tenth, but then some of them would also be part of the Levitical sacrificial system. Overall, Moses brings first fruits up 13 times. Um, because this was a really essential concept that people would understand. Exodus 23, 19 says this. It says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And then Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. How many of y'all out here grow produce? All right, so you, you might think that that doesn't necessarily apply uh, to us, but this piece of wisdom, I think, certainly does. And based on these principles, I believe it's wise that when we consider giving to the church, when we consider generosity, we make, we make it a principle that we are giving of what we are given to first. So when that paycheck hits the very first thing you do is you account for what you're going to give to your church. Many of us probably aren't that great at budgeting. Now, I know that some of you are, and I'm coming around. Uh, I'm, I'd be the first guy to say I'm not awesome at this. Um, and for those of, that, of us that aren't awesome, if we're not using a principle of first fruits, and we're using a principle of, well, we'll, we'll give back to God what is left, chances are there's not going to be much left. You see, there's this almost infallible human rule. Spending expands to your income. Generally speaking, and not dogmatically, of course, if you make more, the more you buy. Well, the more you buy, the more you have to store, the more you have to repair, the more you have to insure. Spending begets spending, and if we're setting aside those first fruits, then those two will be spent. If we aren't setting aside those first fruits, those two will be spent before they're even given to the church. Because spending does really, it really does beget spending. What does it look like, though, to give generously and maybe even give beyond the church? I know that in this, in this culture, as we transition sort of out of a, I know a number of you here would be part of the millennial culture still, um, but we're transitioning into whatever is, is next. I don't know what that generation is called. Um, studies upon studies have shown us that 
these generations are generous generation. They want to be involved. They want to give. And so what a lot of times ends up happening is there's a cause, there's something that they are behind, and that's where they direct a majority of their giving. So one question that frequently comes up is, well, I know that I have my first fruits over here. How can we, can I split that up and can I give that in different directions, right? Can I give between a church and other organizations that I'm passionate about? And it's a really good question. And it's probably a, a question that's being derived out of a life that wants to be generous. And so generous giving is going to allow you to do that, but I believe that of your first importance is giving to your church. So when we give of what God's given us, uh, as we now understand that there's no percentage that it's tied to, however, I believe that we, we ought to be marked by a couple of things. Scriptures tell us this. We read these earlier. We ought to be marked by generosity. We ought to be marked by cheerfulness. We ought to be marked by faithfulness. So how much does one give to their church? Finally, he's going to answer the question. Sort of. Uh, I do think that the local church has a unique and special place in God's plan, and therefore a special claim on people's generous giving. Other kinds of ministries are wonderful, they're important, and I want, I want them to flourish. There's a number of them that we partner with. We talk all the time about, I mean, I talked about it today, Chosen 300. It's a, that's a ministry. We have Alpha Care, our local crisis pregnancy center. That's, that's also a ministry. These are independent organizations that are serving our city um, that derive their giving from people just like you and me. Um, so we're involved in a few of these. But the one institution in the world that's clearly rooted in the New Testament that has been ordained by God is the local church. So if this institution fails, think of it this way, if this institution fails, all other ministries become ineffective. If the church fails, all other ministries, I would argue, become unbiblical. The local church is the seedbed for all other ministries. The church is the place where the participants in those ministries find their nourishment and the biblical expression of their corporate worship. Um, we're not going to Alpha Care on Sunday mornings to have church service, right? That's not where we worship. So I think it's a good rule of thumb, and I want you to hear these words very intentionally. I think it's a good rule of thumb to start your generous giving by tithing to the local church and then giving over and above elsewhere. I would never say that's a rule. I would never say that's what the New Testament mandates. I think it's a good principle. There is no thus saith the Lord here. Uh, it may simply be a helpful guideline for you. So if you're looking for the answer, how much do I give to my local church? I can't give you a percentage. I can't give you an amount. As I said, your giving will be marked or should be marked by eagerness, cheerfulness, generosity. Of course, this, 
I don't think we deal with this in our local context. Uh, if we do, I'm not aware of it. Uh, but if you think of it this way, there are wealthy Christians. And if you think of a wealthy Christian, um, let's just say they're worth millions. These are people who really can't just do a normal tithe to their local church, right? Their giving would exceed the church budget, you know? And so these are people who have chosen to, to give in many, many directions. The principle is this. It's not a number mandate. It's really a mandate of your heart and of your attitude, um, as we've said. So I want to put all the emphasis on this. Let's be lavish in our generosity. Let's be sacrificial in our giving. Let's be loyal to our local church. And let's be far-seeing of our support for many, many other ministries. And I think if those are things that are marking your life and are marking your mindset of giving, I think God's going to handle those percentages for you. Let me wrap this thing up. I want you to recall a few moments ago when I talked about how spending begets spending. If this is true, if expenses almost inevitably fill and expand to what our income is, how shall we restrain ourselves from accumulating more and more stuff and more and more expensive stuff and looking to the world like we have all the same values that they do in our little earthly prelude to eternity? The answer is that as our income grows, which I know for you college students, you're eager for that to happen sometime soon, right? I remember those days. Side note, when I was in college, we could have a job. It had to be on the campus, though. So you couldn't go get a job somewhere else. And if you worked on campus, you received zero dollars. It all went straight to your student bill. Uh, because they assumed that you owed the school money. Um, so while it helped me not go into debt in college, I still made $0 to put into my wallet to go buy anything else, right? So I get the, I get the rub big time there, right? Um, anyway, back to what I was thinking. So as our income grows, as we move beyond the tithe, we resolve to give a greater and greater percentage of our income to advance the kingdom of God. That's what generous living and giving looks like. This puts the brakes on our natural impulse to just spend and spend and spend. Instead, God calls each and every one of us to live a life that's marked by generosity. There is so much more that can be said on this topic. Um, this could be, the topic of generosity in the scriptures very well could be a nice little series that we could do, albeit I'm sure it makes a few of us a little uncomfortable because these are some things that maybe we've really struggled with. Maybe these are some concepts that are a little foreign to you, and you're like, eh, does the Bible really say that? You know, I, I get that. So there's a lot that could be said on this topic, and I trust that this, this sermon sort of serves as a, a launching point uh, and a solid introduction to what living a generous life for all of us looks like. After all, let's consider the one who's been no more generous to us than Jesus. Nobody 
has been more generous to us than Jesus. As Jesus laid down his life for us, there's nothing that we can do in terms of generosity to repay that. And we would never say that that is part of how you give generously. You can't pay Jesus back for the generosity he's given to you. However, you can honor Jesus by doing the things that he has taught us in Scripture, by living generously, by giving cheerfully, and by giving faithfully. So let's set our hearts to do that, and let's be faithful to do what God has called us to do in terms of living a generous life. Let's pray. Father, you have been so generous with us. How could we even come close to being generous to you? If that's our mindset, then we will never get there. But Lord, if we come to this by the Spirit's work in our life to purpose to be cheerful givers, to be faithful givers, to be generous givers, that's going to look different for all of us. Because it's not about an amount. And as I studied this last week and I looked at these things, I wanted to be very, very clear to not say that anyone must give X amount. Because that's not what you've taught us, Lord. So Father, as we work in our hearts to look at what it means to live a generous life, to live a Christian life marked by generosity, I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would captivate us to do that. That your Spirit would lead us uh, into making that happen. If we're not using principles of first fruits, may your spirit convict us of that and lead us towards it. All the while, Lord, we do this not out of compulsion, not out of demand, but we do this, Lord, out of our love and desire to honor you, to see the kingdom built and expanded because it's what you've called us to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.